Our scripture this morning comes from Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1 and continuing through verse 6. Listen now for the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was, made, was not made of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Thank God for this, the reading of his word. You may be seated. Jason, please come talk to us about God. I have a, uh, a couple of my boys who really enjoy reading war stories. And uh, some of the things they share with me are pretty fascinating. They'll get into the details about different battles and strategies and, and why this side or that side might have won. But my favorite stories are the ones about the actual men and women who served, stories of, of bravery and of courage. One such story is about the Western actor, Audie Murphy. Some of you may know who that is. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, Audie was too young to go fight, but that didn't stop them. With the help of his sister, he lied about his age and listened to the military and went off to war. Later, Audie was um, commanding some 40 U.S. troops who were stationed in Germany with the task of holding an important roadway until reinforcements arrived. However, the responding troops were delayed. So during that time, on a nice, quiet, snowy day, Adi and his men were attacked by 250 German troops along with six German tanks. Adi sent his men back to take cover behind a tree line while he stayed on the battlefield alone, armed with his rifle and a field telephone, which he used to call in artillery attacks. He eventually saw an abandoned U.S. tank to the side that was burning, and he ran over to it, and he discovered it still had some ammo, so he, he climbed on board and began using the tank's gun to fire at the Germans. This, of course, did not stop the Germans from advancing, but it did slow them down some. At one point, someone asked him over the phone how close the Germans were to his position, to which he replied, just hold on, and I will let you talk to them. After about an hour of being out on the battlefield, he ran out of ammo, so he jumped off the tank and headed back to where his men were, limping along because during the exchange of gunfire, some shrapnel had flown into his legs. When he reached his men, they immediately wanted to evacuate him because of his injuries, but he would not hear of it. Instead, he rallied a counterattack and eventually drove the Germans back. He did all of this at the age of 19. 19. 
And for me, I, the icing on the cake was that he was a Texan, so that makes me even more proud. <laughs> Not surprisingly, he became a national hero, and he was given the Medal of Honor for his actions in Braver that day. And eventually, he got into making Western movies. And this is just, just one of the many, many stories of the brave men and women, heroes of the United States Armed Forces. And we thank God for such people. In today's passage, we're going to take a look at another military leader, one by the name of Barack. Now, some people say Barack, some say Barack. I always say Barack, and I'm going to stick with that because if I try to say Barack, it'll mess me up. So we're going with Barack today. But I would not classify him as a war hero, even though he was a commander. I wouldn't actually call him a hero of any sort. And the story is found in chapters 4 and 5 of Judges. And now both of these chapters actually tell the same story. But chapter 4 tells us in story form, while chapter 5 tells us the story in the form of a song. And we're going to be looking at chapter 4 for the most part. We'll use chapter 5 to fill in a few of the details along the way. So let's dive in and let's look, let, let's look at God's word together. Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heresheth Haguim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Last week, Pastor David laid out a common theme that we see throughout the book of Judges. The Israelites sin, God oppresses them, they cry out, and God delivers them. In Judges 4, we see because of their sin, God gives them into the hands of King Jabin. And this would turn out to be one of the greatest oppressions that they would experience. And the text mentions that he had 900 chariots of iron. And we're going to get to more detail about those in just a minute. But after 20 years of this cruel oppression, the Israelites realize, hey, we're here because of our sin. And they begin to cry out to God for help. And God, as the pattern has been laid out, hears their prayers. And he provides a judge to deliver them. Let's look at verse 4. Now Deborah... A prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. It's interesting how the Bible introduces Deborah here. First it describes her as a, a prophetess. She's a female prophet. And then the text goes on to say that she is the wife of Lapidoth. And some translate this phrase as a woman of splendor. Regardless, the point is her gender. She is a female prophet. She is a wife or a woman of splendors. There's a strong emphasis on this judge being a woman. Why is this important? Because it, it was the responsibility of the men to be the leaders and the judges of Israel. But in studying both chapters 4 and 5, we see that the men lacked courage and leadership. And so Deborah becomes the next judge. Please understand, though, that this was not an issue of capability. God wasn't bringing in a lesser or a second best. 
In fact, Deborah ended up being one of the godliest of all judges. She was always pointing people back to God. The people called her mother in Israel. This was to show her respect and honor. So again, this was not an issue of her being capable. This was an issue of roles and the lack of obedience and leadership on the part of the men. They lacked courage. They were not stepping up to the plate. So Deborah became the judge, and she served as, as a civil leader and as judge over legal cases. However, a woman could not lead the military. So when it came time to raise up an army, army to go against the Canaanites for deliverance, she calls on Barak. And here's what she says to him, verses 6 through 7. She says, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon. And I will draw out Sisera and, general, and the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon. Sorry, I just knocked over my water and it distracted me. And it's pouring all over stage. <laughs> Let me find my place again. Da, 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 da. Okay, I will draw Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give them into your hands. Now, I know this statement reads like a question. She says, has the Lord not commanded you? But it's really an emphatic statement. She's emphatically telling him that this is what God has commanded him. To go and gather 10,000 men. Go to Mount Tabor. To, that God will draw Sisera and his 900 chariots out and his troops to meet him there. And that God will give them into his hand. That they will be defeated by the Israelites. And of course, at this time, the Israelites, they didn't have an army. They were under the oppression of King Jabin. And so this is why Barak was told to go gather 10,000 men. And, and he probably could have had more. But we find out in Judges 5.23 that many of the Israeli men refused to go and fight. Again, this was the reflection of the culture of the men at that time. And 10,000 men is really not many considering that Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. Some say that, that one chariot is the equivalent of having 100 men. Others say it's the equivalent of having 1,000 men. Either way, 900 chariots of iron plus the rest of Sisera's troops is what Barak was up against. This was a massive and powerful military God told them to take on. Of course, no matter the numbers of men on either side, the Israelites had the greatest advantage, right? Because God was on their side. And he'd already promised Barak through Deborah that the Israelites would win. It was as good as done. But look at me in verse 8 at Barak's response to Deborah. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. When I hear this, I think of my little kids, right? Like, like when, I, when I send them to go to, to the garage to get something or, or the other end of the house, and, and they say, back, but, Dad, it's dark. Can, can somebody go with me? Or when they tell their siblings, I'll go if you go with me. But we're not talking about my little kids, are we? This is the commander of the, the military 
the one to whom God just promised the victory. He says, just go get the men and do as you're told, and God will deliver the enemy into your hands. But instead of looking to and trusting God, Brock sees what looks like an impossible mission and tells Deborah, I'll go if you go with me. And so Deborah responds to that. She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. What's Deborah saying? And she lets him know, I'm going to go with you. But it's going to cost you. That Barak is going to pay a price for not trusting God and obeying him alone. And we find out the price tag that he paid is that he would not lay the final blow in the battle, but that Sisera, the Canaanite general, would be killed by a woman who we later learn is jail. She would get the glory for the battle, not Barak. This because of his, his sin and his doubt and not trusting God. So Barak recruits the 10,000 men and, and they head up Mount Tabar with Deborah. Sisera gets wind of this, and, and he calls on his 900 chariots of iron and his troops, and, and they gather at the base of, of Mount Tabar at the, at the river Kishon, which was a dry riverbed for most of the year. And so the stage is set. The Israelites are on Mount Tabar. The Canaanites in the river Kishon were all ready for battle. And then look who has to make the call for the attack. Verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Do, does not the Lord go out before you? Once again, we have Barak showing no signs of courage or good leadership. Deborah has to tell him, Barak, get up. Let's get going. So Barak and his 10,000 men, they head down the mountain and they, they attack the Canaanites. And verse 15 tells us that, that the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariots and he fled away on foot. Verse 16 says, all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. They did it. The Israelites 10,000 wiped out by the Canaanites. And now what we don't see in chapter 4, but chapter 5 lets us in on, is that that God actually had sent a rain that had muddied the riverbed. So Sisera's 900 chariots of iron got stuck in the mud, allowing for the Israelites to come through and to wipe them out. No one survives except for Sisera. And now he is on the run. And And he runs into jail, and she invites him into her tent, and he believes that he has found a safe hiding place, verses 18 through 23. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her and to her tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk. And gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him 
and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael came. She went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, and the tent peg in his temple. That's a pretty gruesome way to die, huh? Sisera lay dead. His men all killed. The war is over. It is done. The Israelites were victorious and once again a free people. God had heard their cries. But I wonder what it felt like for Barak at that moment. To know the sweetness of freedom, but at the same time to taste the bitterness of his doubts in God along the way. Among the shouts of a nation's victory, to feel the pain of personal defeat, knowing you had not led as you should have. To be the military leader, but the glory going to another. Like I said, he was certainly no war hero. And I'm sure he, he lived with that for the rest of his life. But did you know this is not the only thing the Bible has to say about Barak? This is what I would call a, a plot twist. And I love a good plot twist, and I think this is a good one. But we don't find this twist in chapter 4. We don't find it in chapter 5. We don't even find it in the book of Judges at all. We actually had to flip all the way over to the, new, the, the pages of the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Look with me way down in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak. Barak. Here, this is Hebrews 11, right? The chapter often dubbed the Hall of Fame or the Heroes of the Faith. This is the chapter where we find Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Rahab, Moses. But Barak? Barak is listed in the faith chapter? Does this not surprise you like it surprised me? Did I miss something in the story? If anything, I would say that Barak lacked faith over and over again, and yet here he is, Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Well, could it be that we often have a wrong perspective of Hebrews 11 and those who are in it? Could it be that, that we have the wrong criteria as we evaluate people, and maybe even how we evaluate and see ourselves? See, often we're told that, that we should look at the Hebrews, uh, the people of Hebrews 11 as examples to follow, that, that we should strive to have enough faith like theirs, and then we can do great and mighty things like they did. But despite all the Sunday school lessons to that end, I would argue that is not the point. I think there's a greater lesson for us, one drenched in God's grace. See, when we go back and we actually read the stories of these individuals, we're often reminded that they too, like Barak, are sinners. And their faith was certainly far from perfect. And Hebrews 11 doesn't even remember these people, though, for the weaknesses, does it? 
And we'll see that that, the reason being, is because they are not the point of the text. And in reality, how strong their faith was is not the point either. Our new worship center over here, it's, it'll be done in the next couple of months. If you saw the frame a few months ago, you, you've seen these massive steel beams that are put into place to help to hold the structure up. Now imagine with me, if you drove by when they're putting those beams up and you saw this man with, with no tools, nothing to help him out, and he bends down and he picks up one of these mighty big steel beams and he puts it into place. That would be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? You could take a video of that, put it on social media, and watch that thing go viral pretty quickly. But the reality is those beams were set into place by a man who was using a crane which lifted the beams and put them where they were supposed to go. In other words, I could say, by the crane, this man lifted these beams and put them into place. Now, while the beams are no less impressive regardless of how they got up there, the method in which they were placed matters. In the first scenario, it was done by the strength and the might of the man. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. The focus is on him and Rightly so. But in the second scenario, when we hear it was done through a crane, we're not surprised. Because we know that's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's accomplished every day, through the right tools for the job. And in the second scenario, the man no longer gets the credit, right? He's no longer the focal point. He's just using the right tools in the right way to get the job done. See, we often view Hebrews 11 through the lens of the first scenario. We think so, so highly of these men and women for their great and strong faith in all that they did. However, the reality is we ought to read it through the lens of, of the second scenario. But rather than a crane being the tool they used, these men and women had a greater tool, their faith in God. And as they relied on and trusted in God through faith, and as they were obedient to him, they were able to carry out the tasks at hand through him. So, so we really shouldn't be surprised or, or marvel at these people as we read all the things that they had done. Instead, chapter 11 should, should cause us to marvel at the grace and the goodness of God as we, as we seek him and seek to do his work through him. And I'm not saying that, that the people or even their acts they performed are unimportant. But what I am saying is they are not the point because God is. Jesus is the point. Understanding this, seeing this, it helps us not only gain a better perspective of Hebrews 11, but it will also help us see why these people were not remembered by their failures. And it helps us see how that they are truly remembered, which I believe is their true identity. And in the end, we'll see how this actually affects the way we see ourselves. We'll see our true identity. Identity, But to see that, we need to, to move from chapter 11 to, to chapter 12. Chapter 12 in Hebrew starts this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, who, who are these witnesses? The, these are um, those from chapter 11, right? And, and we're told that they're surrounding us and they're encouraging us. And look at the encouragement we are, we are given by this. Look at what we are told that we are to be doing. We are told that we should be looking to Jesus, verse 2 of Hebrews 12. 
Notice the text doesn't say, now that you've seen all that these people have done, follow their example. No, it says, now that you've seen they've done, look to Jesus. Why? Because he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Faith, faith starts with him. He, he sustains it. He, he perfects it. We see this with Barak. Back, back in Hebrews eleven forty three. the author tells us that, that Barak and all the men that were named with him were made strong out of weakness. They were weak, but their faith, no matter how imperfect, was in a mighty God. And God still uses people with weak faith. Amen? He sustains their faith. He grows their faith. See, it's not important how well Barak lived out his faith or how strong it was or, or whether he was a hero or not. The point is, again, Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of his faith, he, he is the point, and he's the center of all who have faith. That's why the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus. And when we look to Jesus... Again, we see why they were not remembered for their failures, but instead for their faith in God and in the end, their true identity. I think we see this in Hebrews 11.4 when we're told that, that because of Abel, because of his faith in God, he was commended as righteous. In verse 7, it says that, that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that, be, that comes by faith. But not only these two, flip real quick with me over to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 and verse 3, this is what it says. Now to the one who works, his wages, actually let me back up to verse 3. For what does, the scripture, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Abraham, Noah, Abel, these others, their identity was not in their failures or anything else. Their identity found in God was that they were righteous. Every one of them, including Barak. Not, not because of what they did or, or they'd have something to boast about. It'd be something that was due to them. But, but because through grace and grace alone, they were made righteous through their faith in God. And this is not only true for them, but for us as well. Romans 4, same chapter, verses 23 through 25 says this. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, for all who believe, who, who look to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, for those whose faith is in God, they are made righteous. And this is our true identity in Christ. We are righteous in Christ, we are righteous in Christ. The perfect, the, the holy, sinless righteousness of Jesus is, is imputed to us. It, it's credited to us, placed on us. Our, our record is that of no more of a criminal, but in God, by faith, our record is spotless. It is clean. And by the way, it's not faith itself that makes us righteous, okay? 
But by faith, we are in union with Christ. And when the Father looks at us, he sees our union with Christ, and then he sees the righteousness of Christ upon us. And that is our identity as righteous in him. We sang uh, uh, the song a few minutes ago, Before the Throne of God. And in the last verse, we sing these words, I bow before the cross of Christ and marvel at his love divine. And God's perfect son was sacrificed to make me righteous in God's eyes. What sweet truths that that line, that those lines say. But I actually feel like, and I don't disagree with the last line of that song, but I, I, I feel like it only gives a partial understanding of this truth. And here's what I mean. Think about a wife for a moment. She may say something along the lines of, I don't care what this person or that person thinks about how I look. As long as my husband thinks I'm beautiful, as long as I'm beautiful in his eyes, that's all that matters. But see, the righteousness is not here just in the eyes of the beholder for us, okay? While it's true that we are righteous in God's eyes, it's so much greater than that. We're not only righteous in his eyes, we are righteous in Christ. That is our identity. Do you get that? That is who we are in Christ. Now some will say, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins I've committed. And and it's true. I don't. But Jesus does. And Hebrew tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for you. Once Martin Luther was, was buried beneath the gravity of his sin, and he was told, Martin, quit looking at your sin and start looking at Jesus. There are some of us here today who need to stop looking at our sins, past or present. Yes, repent of them if you have not done so, but but we've got to take our focus off of our sins and start to look to Jesus and see that you are righteous in him. That's who you are. Your identity in him does not change because of your sin. Others in here try to find their identity through what other people think. Always working to prove themselves worthy in the sight of others, hoping to win their approval. In their own minds, they just never seem to measure up. A very familiar passage, I think, answers this one. It says in Romans 1, 16 through 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or that last line could read this way, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. By faith is righteous. Again, this is your identity in Christ. Galatians says we're not to to seek to please man, but instead to please God. And it is righteousness that pleases God. So brothers and sisters, if this is you, look to Jesus and see that you are righteous in him. In him, you already have the only approval that truly really matters. Some might say, I don't fit in these categories. I know who I am. I'm confident in that. You have all the answers. You rarely need the help of anybody else. If something starts going south, you're not worried about it because you've got it figured out. 
Sounds a lot like a Texan to me. But yet in your confidence, you often rely on self instead of God. To you, your confidence actually has become your identity. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Listen, humble yourselves. Look to Jesus. See, your identity is not how confident you are or how well you have everything together, but your identity is in the righteousness of Christ. And I could go on and on and on, but no matter what example I give, the reply is the same. Look to Jesus and see that you are righteous in Christ. So why does this matter? What difference does, does looking to Jesus, remembering our identity as those who are righteous in him make for our everyday life? First, let me understand what I'm not trying to do for us. I'm not looking to build our self-esteem. Our self-esteem is a huge part of our problem, isn't it? We all need a lot less self-esteem and a lot more Jesus. So please do not hear this message and go home and gloat how about how special you are in Jesus. Because there is something far greater than being special. And that's being found in Jesus and in his righteousness. So again, why does this matter? Well, because when we live in the light of these truths, it should cause us to glorify God. It should cause us to glorify God. See, when we have our eyes fixed on him and we see his glory and splendor, when we see who he is, the holy God, and and we see all that he has done through the redemptive work on the cross, making us righteous in him, our response is to glorify him. The mission statement of our church starts with these words. Our mission is to glorify God. And not just corporately, but as individuals. Deuteronomy 6.5 says that we are to love the Lord with our whole heart and our soul and might. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us in everything we do, we are to glorify God. This is to to be the aim of all that we do as Christians. It's our goal. It's our mission. It's what we strive for. It should be our highest priority. One author wrote, as we continue to believe the gospel, our eyes remain centered on Christ. And if they are centered on Christ, they are centered on God himself, who is not simply at the top of our priority list, but the fountain and center of every priority of our lives. See, this affects our everyday life, right? As we go about the things that God has set right before us, being a husband or or a wife or a dad or a mom, a grandparent, a single person, a child, a teenager, employer, employee, neighbor, a board member, goes on and on. But no matter where we are in life, from the mundane to the glorious, pain or pleasure, in the good or bad, we are to strive to glorify God in all that we do, delighting ourselves in him. By the way, knowing that we are standing in our identity as righteousness should motivate us to live out that righteousness, right? That through the, through the grace of God and our faith in him, seeking to, to obey God, following his commands, and this too is yet another way that we 
glorify God. If you love me, you obey me. It gives glory back to God. So we're to glorify God, but then also we are to serve others. This should cause us to serve others. There's so much freedom when we're looking at Jesus, knowing we're made righteous in him, and that he's the point of the story in our faith because this helps us to stop looking and focusing on ourselves, and instead we turn and serve others instead. Listen, you know that we live in a world and a culture that idolizes self. On average, there are 90 Two million selfies taken every day. It's, it's estimated that some people spend 54 hours of their year on selfies. That's about seven minutes a day. All around us, our culture says, hey, do you. Be you. Do whatever makes you happy. We're not exempt from this, guys. Right? We, we try to fill our time doing what makes us happy, what brings us joy. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, though, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Ephesians 4, 22, 24 says, put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And by the way, this verse actually captures both glorifying God and serving others. Holiness refers to our worship of God while righteousness is referring to how we treat others. And so we're, we're told to put off our old self and, and live in our new identity as those who are righteous in Christ. And when we do, we quit looking at self and instead we look to glorify God and to serve others. Martin, Lord Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones said this, if, if we only spent more of our time looking at Christ, we should soon forget ourselves. Because I know none of us do this perfectly. We fail at it often, Right? Every day, maybe every hour or every 15 minutes or even fewer minutes than that. But listen, our failure to live out perfectly the life God has called us to does not change our identity in him. Remember, he's the one who gave us this identity based on his work, not ours. But at the same time, this should cause us to repent, right? Not only to God, but, but sometimes we need to go back to seek the forgiveness of those that we have not loved and served as we should because we were too busy looking to ourselves. But thank God for his grace and his mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ, who empowers us through his grace, not only to repent of these things, but to live out these things. And as you repent, remember, you are still righteous in him. And there might be a few here today who, who do not have this identity as righteous, because you have yet to know the sweetness of your sins forgiven. You don't know what it means to have this in Christ. And I encourage it to you is this. Look to Christ. Look to him. Call upon his name and repent and be saved. Come find that you too can be made righteous. By the way, can I jump back to the issue of heroes for a second? Who is the hero of Judges 4 and 5? It's not Barak, is it? It's not Deborah. It's not even jail. The answer is found in verse 23 of Judges 4. 
on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. Who was the hero? God was. In Hebrews 11, the chapter that I think is so poorly referred to as the heroes of the faith, who is the hero of the faith? It's God. It's Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the hero. And so who is the hero of our faith? Whose redemptive work has saved us? It's Jesus. Jesus is the hero, the author, the perfecter of our faith. You know, I'm really thankful for the story of Barak. Because when you think about it, we're all a bunch of Baraks our own ways, aren't we? We all fall short of the glory of God. But you know something that Barak's name, written in the book of Hebrews, should remind us? As Christians, our names are written in a book as well. The book of life. And there might be some who wonder about us. Really? Their name is in that book? How? And we'll say with Barak, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. That's where my righteousness is found. So may we be a church whose eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus, whose identity is firmly grounded as righteous in Christ, so that we in turn will seek to glorify God and serve others within our church, within our community, and throughout the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the story of Barak. I thank you that we see your grace and your kindness and your mercy all over it. I thank you that not only have you called us to look to Christ, but our identity is found in Christ, that we are made righteous in him. Otherwise, we would have no hope. There would be no chance for us. But by your grace, and your mercy, we have salvation, we have life. So, Lord, we do say, we say all glory and honor and praise be to you and you alone. And, God, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you that we'd go out and serve those around us. We pray in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.